Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max. And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. From WBEZ Chicago, this is Nerdette. I'm Greta Johnson. And I'm Trisha Bobita. Today we're talking with violist Nadia Sirota. She's a chamber musician and also hosts the podcast Meet the Composer. Nadia has worked with all sorts of different musicians, people from Paul Simon to Nico Muley to Arcade Fire and even Kesha. I'm excited about this because it turns out <laughs> yes. that Pandora knows my musical taste better than I do because I've been using it for over a decade. The algorithm. And I realized that the station I listen to the most, which I have no idea how it began. Is it the Kesha station? No, but it is the people playing pop songs on classical instruments station. Oh, that is what it has become after 10 years. Interesting. Which is a thing that I maybe should be embarrassed about. That being actually my go-to music. It's like cellos (laughs) playing pop songs. But maybe Nadia would say that's okay. What's an example? And apparently that is... In my heart, what my favorite music is. I would never admit that. Uh, Except that you just did. Except that I just did. (laughs) But Nadia would say maybe that's good because it's making classical music more accessible. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a difference between classical instruments playing pop songs and still classical music. Oh, fine. Well, we are going to talk to her about making weird music more accessible. Yes. And the fact that she wants to create rabid classical music fans and her love of aquariums. So, Nadia, your tagline is new music on the viola and new music on the radio. I wonder how does new music fit into classical music and how do you see yourself within those two worlds? Yeah. So classical music is a weird term, right? Because it, you know, on the one hand applies to music from the classical era, which is like 18th century music or whatever music that was being written around the time of like the Revolutionary War. Mm -hmm. However, music that is for those instruments has been constantly written from the like... 14th century up through yesterday, or actually up through this morning, probably. (laughs) So it's very funny because like every other genre of music, we're used to hearing new music. We're used to hearing like the newest version. We're used to hearing Kesha's album that just came out like last week or whatever. But in classical music, really the standard is that we're going to listen to music that people know already or music that is by old dead dudes predominantly. So what I find amazing about new music or what new music is in general is just music that's written by people who are alive at this time. Um, And then things get kind of fuzzy, right? Because like (laughs) the bridge between new music, like new classical music and avant-garde pop music is like really weird and fuzzy. And it sort of has to do with like training maybe, but it gets like iffy and confusing. Anyway, but you know, music that is written for the viola in general, I would consider to be recently, I would consider to be new music, but that's, it's fuzzy. So what attracted you to the viola in the first place? 
so I started on the violin, and I come from a family of musicians, so I kind of had this cocky childhood wherein I, like, knew I was an amazing musician, but actually I was really, really bad at my instrument. <laughs> so I didn't really practice, but, like, believed in my powers until, like, a certain point came, and I, you know, there's that magical moment in middle school where all of a sudden you become self-conscious or maybe just self-aware mm -hmm. and, like, realize where you actually stand in the grand scheme of things. So, you know, violin is really, really fun until you get to a certain point, and then it becomes about learning all of these etudes that are sort of like, it's sort of like a sports moment in violin, you know what I mean, where you're trying to, like, do really, really complicated routines on the instrument, and the music isn't always as good as it could be. And it was around that time, also around the time that I became, like, an alto instead of a soprano, that I first became attracted to the viola, because the viola's repertoire tends to be kind of, like, soulful and throaty and weird and tortured, and I was, like, 13, and it was so perfect for me. <laughs> so I just kind of stuck a toe into the world of the viola, and it allowed me to do a couple of things, but one of them was recalibrate, like, my cocky childhood self-assuredness, which was based on no actual fact or skill. I was able to kind of wipe that away because I started a new instrument and like go back to basics and kind of learn some technique and really start a practicing regimen. So a bunch of things kind of clicked when I found that instrument, but the short of it is that I really kind of found my voice when I switched to viola. One thing you've said before about what appeals to you about the viola, which I really loved, is that the voice of the viola can feel very much sort of like a, a lower register female or a higher register male. Yeah. And the idea of it existing in that gray area, I just find so fascinating. And it seems like a space that you really like to occupy as well. I mean, even thinking about what new music is and the fact that you're still a classical musician, that nuance around all of it seems to be something that you really like to revel in. Absolutely. I mean, I feel like, yes, there's definitely like a gendery, weird quality to the viola, but also it just is complicated. And I feel like people are complicated. It's They're not cut and dry. Not that the violin is, like, super cut and dry, and I don't mean to call them shallow, <laughs> but, like, there's something about my personality and that of the viola and the way in which, you know, it tends not to be the solo instrument. It tends to be the instrument that adds color. I, I often say, like, it makes ensembles sound expensive. So it's it's this <laughs> weird, like, inner quality. I played the bassoon for several years in junior high and high school, so I feel like I can relate to that notion for sure. Absolutely, Yeah. <laughs> To get the word out about classical music, you have this show called Meet the Composer. It's from WQXR, and you interview modern-day composers and score the conversations with their music. You know, this is affiliated with a classical music radio station. So who are you trying to reach with that show? You know, it, yes, it's affiliated with a classical music radio station, but it's also a podcast. And, mm -hmm. and what I think is great about that medium is you're sort of catching people in intimate private time. So like maybe they're on a long trip and they're driving solo and, you know, you're talking to them or maybe they're commuting or maybe they're about to fall asleep or something like that. You sort of get some one-on-one -on -one intimate time with somebody to kind of present a really amazing and really beautiful thing. I mean, there's tons of classical music, music fans who don't know anything about new music, by the way. Right, totally. And they seem like they could be like a pretty great entry point, too, right? Because, you know, they already are kind of buying into the notion. Totally. And I feel like that's definitely one audience I want to get to. But actually, sometimes those are harder sells than people that know nothing about classical music whatsoever. You'll find a lot of classical music fans, particularly older classical music fans, who will say, oh, I don't like modern music. I don't like mm -hmm. contemporary music. Which is insane because it's like that, you know, that little almond who on TV tells you that it's crazy that you say you don't like almond milk because you haven't tried it. Anyway, <laughs> people say that about contemporary music all the time. Like they say that something they've never heard is their least favorite thing. 
I don't blame them. They've been hurt in the past. This is all just to say sometimes getting classical music fans into contemporary music is a little bit tougher than getting sort of general oh, music fans into contemporary music. people who are just totally music. open. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. That makes sense. I think now would be a great time to actually take a listen to a piece that you have recently performed called Tessalatum, which I have to say is a little weird, but is also super fascinating. Let's listen to some and then we'll chat about it. To what extent do you recommend that people enjoy psychedelics while checking out this music? You know, if that is your thing, I would absolutely <laughs> recommend that you do that. And if that is not your thing, then just check it out in general. Fair enough. Yeah, we worked with a really amazing animator uh, to create a full-length film of this piece as well. And the animation has like a kind of a interesting like geometric deep sea trippy vibe to it as well. I think it puts me in a similar headspace actually as reading poetry or any sort of like interaction with an art form that I don't expose myself to on a regular basis, but probably should. You know what I mean? Like it is just like there is a certain sort of like centered piece that you get from listening to something like this as strange as it is. Totally. And like, I would recommend, although it's a little bit of a tough ask, (laughs) the piece is 38 minutes long, which I know is like a big piece, but it kind of, it's an insane thing to do all in one go. And it has such a great architecture to it that even if you're not listening and trying to figure out, you know, what's going on technically and blah, 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 if you like let it wash over you and you do the whole 38 minutes, you get it, you know, like it moves you viscerally. Absolutely. So another thing that you've done recently, as we mentioned, is you played on this Kesha track, which is sort of like the other side of the (laughs) spectrum, I think, in terms of work that you can be doing. Let's listen to some and then we'll talk about that. I forgot how to daydream So consumed with the wrong things But in the dark I realized this life is short Deep down I'm still a child Playful eyes wide and wild I can't lose hope What's left of my heart still made of gold And I know that I'm still fucked up But are we all my love, darling? Our scars make us who we are, are. So when the winds are howling strong I love this. So how did you end up working on this project? Like, this is so different. (laughs) So one of the things that I do is I play in a group called Why Music, which is a sextet where flute, clarinet, trumpet, violin, viola, and cello. And this is the letter Y, right? Not like W-H-Y, like existential crisis music? Yeah, exactly. It's the letter (laughs) Y with like a little bit of a tinge of the W-H-Y emotionally. But anyway. Okay, okay. (laughs) Um, So this group was formed because we really, really like each other. And also because we found ourselves working with songwriters and bands all the time. 
and just wanted to form a group that could be a collaborative unit for these artists that would really take their work seriously. So one of the things that Y Music did over the past couple of years was do an album and a big tour with Ben Folds. Hmm. And Ben Folds ended up producing that song for Kesha. So it all kind of came together. That's awesome. One thing that you've talked about that I find really appealing is that, you know, if you're listening to new composers, you're listening to someone who's made music who like might even like the same TV show that you do. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, oftentimes people try to get into classical music and what they think they should do is start from 250 years ago, which is a weird move, right? Like what other thing? Like if you were like, I want to start reading novels, like I'm just going to start with like Shakespeare or, you know, plays or whatever. It's just a strange, very alien thing to do. So what I would offer as an alternative suggestion is starting with music of your time, starting with music that will have some kind of like vernacular resonance to you. And again, like the people that make arrangements for Kesha or for Sigaros or whatever, oftentimes those guys are also, and ladies, are also mm-hmm. writing classical concert music. So to sort of start with something whose voice you may have actually heard in some other context I like to use the example of a collaborator I work with all the time called Nico Muley. So Nico has worked with a ton of people, including Bjork and Yonsi and Grizzly Bear and and all sorts of people. His music is also really, really amazing. And if you listen to Nico's music and it makes sense and you figure it out or it's resonating with you, then maybe it makes sense to go back to one of his big influences, which is Stravinsky. And if you like Stravinsky, then maybe go back to Ravel. And if you like Ravel, then go back to Satie. And there are ways to sort of pull these threads all the way back to 250 years ago. So by the time you're listening to Bach, it makes sense. It has context as opposed to just coming from, you know, some weird conceptual nowhere. You'll find a rainbow, rainbow, baby, trust me, I know. Life is scary, but just put those colors on, girl. Come and play along with me tonight. In just a minute, we talk about Nadia's love of aquariums. Aquarii? Aquari? Aquaria? You're listening to Nerdette. Try to find a bet, just put those colors on, Nadia. Yes. You told us that besides classical music, you are obsessed with aquariums. So (laughs) what we have done is we have brought here with us George Parsons. His title at Chicago's Shed Aquarium is Senior Curator of Fishes, which I think might be the best job title ever. That's pretty nice. (laughs) He's a biologist and he specializes in invertebrates and he has helped design a lot of Shed's exhibits and again is the Senior Curator of Fishes. George, welcome to Nerdette. Thanks. And uh, Senior Curator definitely beats Senior Director of Fishes. So... (laughs) That was my previous title, so I like Curator much better. And Nadia, it's wonderful to meet you. I'm very, very impressed and a little bit intimidated right now. So, um, Oh, oh man, mind. the intimidation runs both directions, I, t- I tell oh. you. <laughs> okay, so Nadia, what do you, wanna, what do you got? What do you want to know? Well, first of all, what is the plural of aquarium? It is aquariums, so you can say that. Okay. Do you, do you sometimes yeah. say aquaria just could, to be appropriate? You could say either way, right? Okay. Yeah. It's like um, octopus or octopuses or octopi, and it's perfectly grammatically correct. So it's all good. So Nadia, what do you love about aquariums? I always kind of liked aquariums, but what happened to me in the past three years is I found myself doing a lot of bus tours of the United States. 
and then eventually the UK. And when you're in a bus tour, kind of the flow of the day is that you've played a show the night before and then the bus overnights from the previous venue to the new venue. So you sleep on the bus while it travels to the new place. You wake up in the new place and there tends to be like a day room. So it's a hotel that you've gotten for the day but not the night. And you can kind of wash up and then you have a strange period of time in a new city prior to your like 4 p.m. sound check and then 8 p.m. show and then you keep on going. So this sort of weird amount of time between like 9 a.m. and 4 p.m. <laughs> is the amount of time that you have to visit a city and you want to do something that kind of gives you a flavor of the city but isn't too tiring and doesn't kind of wear you out for your sound check and your show. And what I realized recently was that um, an aquarium is kind of the perfect thing. Like walking to an aquarium, they tend to be close to the city center, which tends to be where the venue is. So maybe it'll be like a mile or two walk, which is kind of a nice walk. And then you're indoors, you're not in the sun, and it's like vibey and the lighting is really, really great. And you can look <laughs> at fish and it's just totally the best. So that's that's where this came from for me. I guess I want to know a little bit more about personalities of octopuses. I feel like I went to like <laughs> six aquariums in a row where they were like really bummed out. And then <laughs> I randomly went to a tiny aquarium in Cleveland with a really extroverted octopus. And then I saw a whole bunch in Monterey Bay. And I don't know, like what is, is there like popular information about the way that octopuses interact in that kind of a setting? Through my career of 30 years or so, I probably have known Oh, 15 or so different octopus, and, and they are all different. So, <laughs> so you're, you hit the nail on the head when you, when you mentioned the different personalities. So um, one of my favorite stories is uh, when I was first starting, we had a 30-pound octopus. He was huge, and I was feeding him at the time, and uh, I had the, my little tray of food, which was meant for all the inhabitants of the of the gallery at that point, on top of the enclosure, and I was kind of giving him uh, food, and he accidentally, I didn't notice, but he grabbed a hold of the tray with one arm. He grabbed a hold of the opposite wall with two of his other arms, <laughs> and this thing, they're all... 100% muscle. So these things are just amazing. You have 30 pounds of sheer muscle just pulling the tray from you. I had to actually stick my foot up onto the ledge of the tank and just pull with all my might to keep him from taking the tray into the tank. And uh, while we were playing a tug of war, he was using his four other arms, flipping up, up on the tray and stealing all the food. Oh my so, God. That was uh, Henry, his name was at that <laughs> point, and uh, he was just a remarkable uh, octopus. We've had many that seem to really like children. We've had many that just come out and just do all kinds of color changing. As you know, probably um, they have what's called chromatophores, which they could open and close and change their colors from bright white to deep, deep red. So they'll just kind of flash at people and just do all kinds of amazing things. So That's awesome. Did you have a favorite animal as a, as a kid that kind of got you into this, this type of work? Um, my mom tells a story that uh, she used to have a, what they call a coffee clutch, whereas a group of neighborhood women would get together every, every so often and, and uh, take their kids with them in tow. This one woman, Mrs. Gustafson, I remember her completely, uh, she had a fish tank. And within the fish tank, she actually had a little crustacean, a little crab. Hmm. And my mom says that, you know, all the other kids would be playing outside or 
you know, playing catch and stuff, but not George. He would be in front of this fish tank for six hours just <laughs> staring at this little crab moving back and forth. So so since then, I'm really attracted to, I should say not attracted, but I really love invertebrates. So anything uh, without a backbone and the more alien, the better. So huh. that's kind of where I'm thinking. So the nudibranch, they're amazing guys. They look incredible. And in the, uh, we were just talking about that record, Tessalatum. In the animation for Tessalatum, Stephen Mertens, the animator, actually, there were no real characters in this entire animation except for one totally amazing nudibranch that is just like swimming through the, the camera at various points, mm-hmm. which kind of started me on this incredible Google rampage for these guys. So, like, where do they live? What are they? Like, what's up with them? <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, uh, Nudibranch is a shellless snail, right? So, and it lives in the ocean. There's a probably over 30,000 different species of Nudibranch. Okay, so wait, my my producer Candace just screen-capped one of these and sent it to me, so now I'm looking okay. at some pictures. Can you describe these? These are gorgeous and crazy looking. <laughs> okay, so if, if you took a a snail or a, even a garden variety snut log, people think, oh, those are really gross looking. But if you put like a really fancy ballerina tutu on them and, and, <laughs> and spray painted them bright pink and and um, made giant eye stalks on them and, and kind of in a whimsical, almost cartoony kind of way, and that would be my description, I would say. Or I think but, that's a really good description, George. <laughs> Coming up, homework from Nadia and George. One involves straws, the other involves singing. Can you guess who's his witch? <laughs> You're listening to Nerdette. If you haven't already, I would say that everyone should go out and listen to a piece of music by Caroline Shaw called Partita for Eight Voices. And this is a piece that she wrote a few years ago that actually won her the Pulitzer Prize in music. It made her the youngest ever Pulitzer Prize winner in classical music at age 30 or something like that. It's for a group that she sings in, and it's a group of eight voices, I think four male and four female or something like that. And they're all classically trained for whatever that's worth. But the way that this group kind of formed is that they were like, okay, we're classically trained singers, but we want to learn weird stuff. So they got like a yodeler to come in and teach them how to yodel. They got a Tuvan throat singer to teach them how to sing overtone singing, which I don't know if you've heard it, but it's like, it's this really Mm -hmm. impossible to describe thing that has overtones and it's totally beautiful. They had a belter come in and teach them how to belt. And Caroline basically took all of those different techniques and applied them to the Baroque dance suite form. So she created this partita, which has multiple movements. And it is just like one of the most affecting and beautiful and odd and specific pieces of music I've heard in a really long time. So if you've never heard any contemporary classical music or you've heard some and you haven't heard this, I would I would highly recommend you go listen to it. I would like to just second that and highly recommend that people also listen to your conversation with Caroline on Meet the Composer because I thought that was really fascinating and 
just so fun to hear from this super young, smart person on this really cool stuff that she's making. Totally. She's such a great human being in addition to being a brilliant genius person. All right. So, George, what do you think? What's your homework? Um, I think that uh, just to commit to using uh, less plastic and maybe even giving up that straw would be really wonderful because you would be helping animals like Glaucus. Look it up. It's a cool animal, G-L-A-U-C-U-S. You know, so that by 2050, if we don't do anything by then, there'll be more plastic in the oceans by mass than fish. So please give up that straw. Okay, give up straws, look up Glaucus. (laughs) (laughs) Right. George and Nadia, thank you both so much for coming on Nerdette. This has really been a delight. It was so fun. Thank you for having us. Thank you. It was great being here. I think Nadia's homework is going to be easier for me to do than George's because I really like straws. I have a straw right now. Yeah, I do see a straw in that cup. Well, what if I use the kind of straws that they had at the Italian restaurant we used to go to sometimes when I was a kid, which were big noodles? Oh, noodle straws would work. I did not think you were going there with it. I mean, there are washable straws, too. It's just like they're tricky to wash because they're straws. Yeah, no, the inside of those gets mangy real fast. Well, I mean, if we bought you a little straw brush. (laughs) This seems like a lot of work. I would rather drink out of a noodle. (laughs) Well, good. At least we figured it out. This show is produced by us, Trisha Bobita and Greta Johnson, along with Justin Bull and Candice Mattel. Our executive producer is Joel Meyer, and our intern is B. Aldrich. Subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or follow us on NPR One or listen in the WBEZ app. It's also super helpful if you leave us all the stars in Apple Podcasts, much like somebody, somebody, Cindy Lou 77 did. Thank you very much for the review, somebody, somebody, Cindy Lou 77. You can find us on Twitter, <laughs> Instagram, and Facebook. We are at Nerdette Podcast. Our theme music is by Pottington bear do your homework do your homework nerdette is supported by the sympathizer podcast from hbo join host philip nguyen in conversation with the cast crew and author viet tan nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic hbo original limited series stream new episodes of hbo's the sympathizer sundays exclusively on max And listen to the Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts.